Second Corinthians chapter five, beginning in verse one, Paul writes, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident. Yes. Well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil or good or bad. In this chapter, Paul continues to answer the accusations of his enemies concerning his ministry. Warren Wiersbe writes, Quote, he points out that his ministry is serious, not careless, that he works from honest motives and not fleshly desires, unquote. Wiersbe points out to four motives that controlled his life and his ministry. Paul's confidence from heaven in verses one through eight, his concern to please Christ in verses nine through 13, his constraint of love in verses 14 through 17, his commission from God in verses 18 through 21. In that defense, Paul gives amazing insights into the issues of doctrine and duty. And of course, we're all curious about what happens when we close our eyes and our breath ceases from our body and we enter into eternity. What happens when you die? What happens when your heart stops beating? What is the truth, the truth? About what happens when you die. King Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, had a palace servant. It was his duty every morning to greet the king with these words. Philip, remember, you must die. Can you imagine? J.S. Whale wrote, quote, Making sense of life means ultimately and always making sense of death. Paul speaks of a body that we're going to receive in the duty of believers as ambassadors of Christ. Paul reassures the reader about the old body and the new body in verses one through eight. The resolve Paul is determined that whether he is in this body or in the body to come, he is determined 
in both bodies to please the Lord as he looks forward to the day of reckoning, which is the judgment seat, which has also been called the Bema seat in verse 9 and 10. Problem. We're not given the answers to all of our questions about the moments following death. But we are given some reassurances. We have a home in heaven in verses 1 through 4. Paul guarantees a hope by the Spirit in verse 5. The same Spirit continues to enlarge, expand, increase our hope in verses 5 through 8. What other assurances do we have? That whatever it is that you're thinking and doing, whatever it is that you're saying, whatever it is and however it is that you're living, your life matters. What you think and what you do matters. The friendships and the fellowship that you form matters. What you do is going to determine the presence of. Or the absence of reward. Look again in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul speaks of our bodies like tents. He uses that metaphor. My father loved to camp. He loved to fish. He loved to hunt. He loved to camp. My mother hated it. And she said that this was proof positive that she loved her children, that she had a home, that you didn't have to be homeless, that you could live inside of a house and not outside of a house. Tents in most cultures and society are temporal. We know that there are cultures and societies where they live in a tent at all times. We live in a world where people have lots of opinions about what happens when you die. In Eastern religions, in some Hinduism and in some Buddhism, they believe that death is an illusion. For some, the atheists, death is an extinction. For some, death is a transition. Illusion, extinction, transition. There was a doctor. She had a sign on her office door that said, when you're at death's door... I'll pull you through. (laughs) To where? Where are you going to pull me through? Speculation about death often begins with words like, well, I think that this is going to happen, or I hope that this is going to happen, or I believe that this is going to happen. But look what Paul writes. For we... Read it for yourself. For we know. Not we believe, we think, we hope, we know. What is it? What is it that Paul knows? If our human body is destroyed, we have a building God has made. A place not made with human hands. Eternal in the heavens. Paul writes that upon the destruction of this body, we're going to be given a home that's suitable for the future. Now, there comes a time, usually it's at least maybe a couple of months past the age of 19, you realize, whoo, thank God. Yeah, at about 20, that's where you plateau. And it's all downhill from there. 
No wonder he uses the illustration of of a tent. Paul told the Thessalonians in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that we will receive a body when Christ returns for his church, his bride. Our earthly bodies return to the dust. Our soul and our spirit unite with Jesus. We await a body and a resurrection. Our believers who die in some kind of disembodied circumstance. What happens to the believer when we shed this flesh and we close our eyes? What happens the moment we enter into the eternal state? Well, some people believe that we're given an eternal body right at that very moment. I happen to believe that even though I don't always understand all the machinations between the time we die and the time of the rapture and the resurrection, our, bo- our soul and our spirit will be united with a new resurrected body That will be appropriate for eternity. Paul writes. For in this we groan. Earnestly desiring to be clothed. With our habitation. Which is from heaven. Paul uses the analogy of a tent. And I think for good reason. Being a tent maker. Paul contrasts. The future. And the present. Many people think that we're now in the land of the living and we're going to the land of the dying. But Christians are in the land of the dying and we believe that we are going to the land of the living. But Paul says. We groan a little in the beginning of our lives. We groan a little bit more with each year that passes. And with each decade that passes and decades soon turn into scores and scores. What who knows what comes after centuries. Medical doctors, of course, listen to the groans of their patients. Swindoll jokingly points out, quote, An orthopedic surgeon tries to keep the tent pegs from pulling loose. A dermatologist tries to keep the canvas in good shape. The general practitioners are always stitching and patching us up, unquote. We groan because our present physical circumstances impede our spiritual lives. Paul switches the metaphor. Right in the middle of the metaphor, he goes from tents to clothing And I suspect it's because tents and clothing in the ancient world as well as the present world are often made of the same kinds of materials. We groan because we're weary. We groan because we are rain-soaked campers who long for home, but when we shed the earthly tent from our shoulders, we won't be left naked and shivering, it says in verses 3 and 4. We'll be clothed with immortality, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 and 54. And like a huge down comforter, life, not death, 
will eventually swallow us up, it says in verse 4. Look what it says in verse 3. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. I know you look at verse 3 and you go, that's in the Bible and we're talking about this in church? Again, think about your context. What does Paul mean by naked? If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Does this mean that the person who's unsaved or absent a covering of righteousness? Does it mean that the believer, though saved, will be absent reward at the resurrection or the judgment seat of Christ? Does it mean that some will be punished by not having an eternal body, but consigned to wander eternity as a disembodied spirit? Does this mean that between death and the resurrection were... Naked, in some sense. Unclothed, with a permanent, glorified body. Again, whatever the proper interpretation is, whatever the conclusion that we draw, it seems to me to make most sense that Paul is contrasting the state of being clothed, that is, alive in our bodies, And naked, that means not alive, yet we shall not be found naked. In other words, there's some kind of spiritual covering. There's some sort of appropriate circumstance that we experience from the moment that we die till the moment that we receive a glorified, resurrected body Look what it says in verse 4. For we who are in this tent groan. Can some of you say amen? I did this morning. I went, oh Lord, oh, what was that that just cracked? Was that my neck? Are all of your joints supposed to do that? My knuckles groan, my shoulders groan, my knees groan. I was standing in line the the other day and I looked down. I was at the post office and I looked down and I noticed that this lady in front of me, her socks were all wrinkled. And so I looked down and then I realized she she wasn't wearing socks. That's when you know you cross the threshold. That's when you know you look in the mirror and you look exactly like your parents. What is Paul talking about? It's interesting to me. The sense that seems to make the most sense to me. Again, that Paul is contrasting the state of being clothed alive in our bodies and naked, not alive. And then he talks about the circumstance. And, and, and look what it says in verse 4. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. Not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. In our physical world, in these physical bodies, we are burdened. By all the inconveniences that accompany our flesh, we are burdened. Paul is in effect saying, not because we want to be unclothed, read, die. 
but further clothed, read that mortality puts on immortality. He talks a little bit about it. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes in verse 20, But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He asks the question, with what kind of a body will, be, will we be raised? And then in verse 51, he talks about the mystery that we, we won't all sleep, but that, that will all be changed. And then he talks about, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, so that when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he's talking about this swallowing up of life, he is an, he's basically giving a description almost like you fall into a blanket that's a comforter. Have you ever had one of those real fuzzy, warm comforters that wherever it touches you, it just brings this profound sense of relief? Comfort. It's warm. It's fuzzy. Like those sweaters girls used to wear in the 60s. Warm, fuzzy, comforter, like a baby in a blanket. And Paul describes something that we're wrapped in some kind of garment that by nature and purpose is designed to bring a sense of well-being. And Paul calls this life. Now, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3? Jesus defines life this way. In John chapter 17, verse 3, it says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He defines eternal life in terms of knowing the Father and knowing the Son, If verse 3 means what I think it means, then verse 4 means that we groan in our present existence being burdened, yet the state between our death and our resurrection, it's still far better to have the temporary burden of physical existence, or I should say, it's far worse to have the temporary burden of physical existence, yet the necessary transition that precedes the glorious reception of our eternal bodies passes through the gateway marked death. You heard the old saying, everybody wants to go to heaven. But nobody wants to die. Lewis Sperry Schaefer held 
the view in his book, Systematic Theology, Volume 4, he writes, A body from heaven eternal with respect to its qualities as any body from heaven must be awaits the believer who dies. He thus will not be unclothed or bodiless between death and the resurrection of that original body, which will be from the grace. The body from heaven could not be the body which is from the grave, nor could the body from the grave serve as the intermediate body before the resurrection. Others like Charles Hodge and A.C. Gabelin rejected that interpretation. H.A. Ironside also rejected that interpretation. He says the verse itself contradicts the thought. It says that the house not made with hands abides eternal in the heavens. According to one view, the house that abides eternal in heaven is found in John chapter 14. Remember where Jesus says, behold, I go to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself so that where I am, you will be. And then he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. So what will happen? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that whatever happens, you're going to be happy. You're going to be safe. You're going to be with Jesus. And you're going to be given a resurrected body that works. Where the eyes never grow dim and where the ear never loses its sense of hearing. And if you have a small and large intestine, they're going to function just fine. All of the stuff that could go wrong now will never go wrong later. And so in verse 5, look what it says. Our hope by the Spirit. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Listen to what you're, look at what you're reading. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Who has prepared you for the future? God. Who has given the solution to the problem of death? God. Who's going to give you a body that's appropriate for the future that you're going to encounter? God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Paul isn't seeking to downplay the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Rather, what he is saying is, and I want you to think this through, God has given you His Holy Spirit as a down payment to prove positive that you're going to come back to life and live forever with Jesus in a glorified body. He doesn't use the analogy that the Holy Spirit is an earnest or a guarantee or a down payment for no good reason. Now, I want you to just think this through for just a few moments. The Bible speaks of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in creating the universe in Genesis 1-2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered, brooded over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit brought disorder and to order. Chaos and confusion to order, symmetry. Something that is not life filled with life to something that's full of life. 
The Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit inspiring and writing the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 14.37 and 1 Thessalonians 4.15. Regenerating the believing sinner in Titus 3.5. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit baptizes the believer in Romans 6.3 and 4. Indwells the believer in John 14.16. Seals the believer in 2 Corinthians 1.22. And also in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers. The Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies. The Holy Spirit is the one who conforms the believer into the image of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides, teaches, and imparts the love of Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit who conforms us, shapes us, molds us, and then seals us. And also acts as the agent to raise the bodies of all departed believers from the dead. If that's just the down payment, can you imagine what full payment looks like? Think about that. I'm going to suggest something to you. I think the ultimate meaning of the passage is that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is proof positive. Not only that we never have to be afraid of death. But that we are going to survive death. And receive a glorified body. And so in verse 6, look what Paul writes. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Paul's confidence is linked to the presence of the Holy Spirit and the promises of God's word. And that's why Paul says, so we are always confident. Isn't that encouraging to you? That Paul isn't going... It's all so mysterious. It's all so confusing. It's all so weird. It's all so problematic. He doesn't say that at all. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the, bo- the from the Lord. Paul is speaking of his human body. And in one sense, to be present in this human form means that in some physical sense, we are absent from the Lord. Now, again, when you become a born-again believer, is God real? Yes. Does Jesus come and live inside of you? Yes. Does the Holy Spirit come and live inside of you? Yes. But what Paul is basically saying is that present circumstances of service may not be ideal because guess what? We can't do what we really want to do. We want to go bowling with Jesus. We want to go to Sweet Tomatoes and have a really healthy lunch with Jesus. We want to hold his hand. We want to look in his eyes. We want to see him and we want to touch him. We want the same kind of interaction that we have with each other. So many people have called and said, why can't I just see him? And why can't I just touch him? And why can't I be with him? Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. What does Paul mean? 
We're walking from a distance. We have glimpses and clues. Again, remember the previous verse. This verse is connected with the previous verse. We're confident, knowing that we're at home in the body, absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are present in our bodies. We are absent from the Lord. The point... Well, have you ever seen Jesus? I mean, it could be possible that some of you have. I've heard people talk about, well, you know, I was shaving and then Jesus showed up. And I go, you cut yourself, right? I hope you were wearing an adult diaper. Because that would create a heart attack within me. The truth. The truth, the truth, the truth. We walk by faith. We are absent from the Lord. We haven't seen him. But we have. What do you mean? We have seen Jesus with the eyes of faith. We have heard Jesus with the ears of faith. We have touched Jesus with the hands of faith. We walk by faith because we're not always privy of what lies in the darkness. We don't always see clearly. And Paul concedes that and confesses it. We see darkly as through a mirror. But then we will at one point see face to face. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 12. We have not necessarily a clear picture, we, but we are going to have a clearer picture. We don't see, feel, hear Jesus with our five senses. I know what you're thinking. Well, then how do we know he's there? Paul proposes that we know that he is there by faith. You remember what Jesus said? I'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, I am with you always. That statement is either true or false. Again, you you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure this one out. Have you ever known Jesus to lie? So what does Jesus mean when he says, I am with you always? It must mean that in some very real way, he is here. He is with us. He is here. He loves us. His love isn't wishful thinking. He is here. He loves us. He is here. He promises us. He is here. He provides for us. So Paul writes in verse 8, we are confident. Yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with The Lord. In verse 8. It makes certain that the false doctrine of soul sleep is not true. We are confident. Yes, well, please. Rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You don't fall asleep in the grave and one day wake up. You are present with the Lord. Here's what Paul is saying. When you fall asleep in this flesh, you wake up in the presence of the Lord. There was a man who didn't want to die. He said, I'm a Christian and I know that I have eternal life, but I'm not homesick yet. What's Paul saying? Paul is homesick. 
He's homesick for heaven. His is a heavenly homesickness. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What happens to us after death, but before the resurrection of the body, whatever else it means between death and the resurrection, we pass out of the earthly body, our spirits into into the presence of the Lord. We are given some sort of appropriate circumstance whereby we can know him and love him, have friendship and fellowship and delight in him. So do we live in Heaven as disembodied spirits. Are we given a temporal body? Do we exist as spirit beings in heaven with Jesus until the rapture or the resurrection? Whatever else and whoever else and whatever else is true, like I said. You'll know him. You'll experience his presence. And you'll be with him. And that's why I'm fond of saying When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. The promise is that wherever he is, you'll be. So if he's on Mars, you'll be on Mars. If he decides to visit some distant galaxy, you'll visit some distant galaxy. If he wants to recreate all the episodes of Star Trek, you'll be with him. And look at the homecoming in verses 9 and 10. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to him, to be well pleasing to him. Now, think about it. Paul reminds the believer that our ambition is tied to the future reward. Again, the single sentence Our ambition is to be well-pleasing to him. Now, again, I want you to pause for a moment and think about Paul's critics. I want you to think about the duplicity, the hypocrisy, the deceit, the accusations that have been leveled against him. And he's basically saying, you've got it wrong. This is what I want to do. I want to please Jesus here. And I want to please Jesus there. I want to please Jesus now. I want to please Jesus later. At what point at one point in a debate, Abraham Lincoln was accused by his opponent, Douglas, of being two faced. And Lincoln said, I leave it to my audience. If I had two faces, would I be wearing this one? Yeah, because he was notoriously not a very uh, handsome man. If Paul is a hypocrite, if Paul is two-faced, then how do you explain the face that he's wearing? How do you explain his life? How do you explain his ministry? How do you explain his message? How do you explain his ambition? And this is interesting. Paul's ambition, whether absent or present, is to be pleasing to the Lord. The real question that you should ask and that I should ask is, what does that mean? What does it mean to please him? What is it that you say and what is it that you do that would make Jesus happy? What brings pleasure to Jesus I want you to understand something. That verse is an important clue to what we'll do in heaven. 
Haven't you ever wondered? Hasn't anyone ever asked you, what will we do in heaven? People who are critics, skeptics, who mock God and mock the Bible, envision people living on a cloud, playing a harp, and they go, boring. But that's not what the Bible says at all. Whatever it is that we do in heaven, it will be the ultimate expression of pleasure to the Savior, glory to God, and the majesty of His will. English physicist and chemist Michael Faraday, who lived from 1791 to 1867, was asked, Have you ever pondered yourself? What will your occupation be in the next world? And Faraday hesitated a while and then said, I shall be with Christ. And that's enough. Whatever it means to be with Jesus, it will be so exciting. It will be so fulfilling. Candy Pearson wrote a song that we sometimes sing. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life. What's the next line? To know and follow hard after you. That pleases him. That becomes the very biblical definition of success. How is it that you define success? Pleasing your boss? Pleasing your husband? Pleasing your wife? Pleasing your friends? Pleasing your neighbors? Pleasing your pastor? The Bible makes one and one definition of success. To please him. Whether in this life or in the next life. Look what it says in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What? 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 That's in the Bible? I thought my sins were forgiven at the cross. We must all appear. You mean all the sinners? Does this mean everybody? Does all mean all? And what are we doing there? That each may receive the things done in his body. What? What? What are you saying? According to what he has done, whether good or bad. You mean just the good stuff, right? Not the bad stuff. No, whether it's good or bad. The American Standard Version makes an important change in the translation. We must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. What is the judgment seat? In the ancient world, it was called Bema. It was the place of... Reward. It was the place where you received what was due. God saves us and redeems us. So it would seem that the judgment seat or the Bema seat of Christ takes place in the context of the death and the resurrection of the believer. The believer stands before the judgment seat of Christ. God has saved us in Christ, redeemed us in Christ. We are redeemed in our soul. We are redeemed in our spirit. One day we will be redeemed in our bodies. Will the believer be made manifest? The answer is yes. What does that mean? 
in our modern age of technology, we have MRIs, we have x-rays, we have forensic technology. People can peer inside of your organs. They can look inside of your large and small intestine. Did I tell you what happened when I had my colonoscopy? The doctor is getting ready to put me to sleep. It's the anesthesiologist. And I remember just going, why am I paying you so much money? And the anesthesiologist says, you're not paying me to put you to sleep. You're paying me to wake you up. He said, now, do you have any questions before we proceed? And I said, you're not going to post this on YouTube, are you? He goes, no, it's completely confidential. But they look inside of you. They see what's in there. That's what this word means. To be made manifest means that everything that's inside of you will be made known before the judgment seat of Christ. The idea is that our attitude will be known and our actions will be known and our motives will be known and the means will be known and the methods will be known. But what about sin? What about misdeeds? Those were judged at the cross of Calvary. Jesus died for you. Jesus bore your sins on the cross. Jesus died. Your debt has been paid in full. The judgment seat of Christ has as its principal purpose to reward you or to withhold reward from you. And you'll talk about that. One translation reads, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Swindoll writes, at the judgment seat, Jesus will be will beyond the quantity will go beyond the quantity of our work and will judge its quality 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 10 through 15 not only will he assess our deeds but the motivation behind those deeds 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as a matter of fact in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 Paul has already wrote them and he says for I know of nothing against myself yet I am not justified by this but he who judges me is the Lord therefore Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. Reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. God knows. God knows. God knows why you pray or don't pray. God knows why you give or why you don't give. God knows why you serve or don't serve. <laughs> Not too long ago, a person showed up at our church. I'd never seen him before. And he stayed till everybody was gone. I said, what is it that you need? He said, I need a way home. Could you give me money so I could go home? I said, where do you live? And he told me. And I said, let's go. He says, it's a three-hour drive. I go, yeah, let's go. It's a three-hour drive, so 
probably should get started. And so we got in the car. We started driving. And he said, why are you doing this? And I said, I can't be sure. The Bible says that people have entertained angels unaware. And if you're an angel who's been sent by God, then I can't risk doing anything other than what Jesus would do in the same circumstance. And he looked at me. And he smiled. And he goes, tell me about your church. I go, my church is really not that important. I go, let me tell you about my Lord. And I proceeded to share with him about Christ. And about his love. And about the future plan. The truth about what happens when you die is linked in a very real way. To the truth about how you live every single day. A woman once asked the French cardinal, my Lord Cardinal, God doesn't pay at the end of every week. Nevertheless, he pays. God will reward. And he will withhold reward. You know, Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I kind of think he is afraid to die. And I think he really meant it when he said, I don't want to be there when it happens. Writers H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw were brilliant men, yet they rejected the message of the scriptures. They placed their trust in their own system of belief, which were based on human observation and human reason and human wisdom. Yet they couldn't find lasting peace and they slowly lost their confidence in what they believed. Wells' final literary work was called A Scream of Despair. And shortly before Shaw died in 1950, he wrote these words, quote, The science to which I pinned my faith is bankrupt. Its councils, which should have established the millennium, have led directly to the suicide of Europe. I believed them once. In their name, I helped destroy the faith of millions. And now they look at me and witness the great tragedy of an atheist who has lost his faith. I thought, what an interesting expression. An atheist who's lost his faith. And then my friend Lee Strobel sent me a note of an article that he has just written called How Easter Caused This Atheist to Lose His Faith. And he tells his own story of not believing God, not believing even for a moment. And then he began an inquiry whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. And something pressed him. And something nagged him. And something challenged him. That a resurrected Jesus changes everything. We know that physical death terminates physical life. But Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, Yet shall he live. 
I remember when I was 16 years old and I first heard that passage of Scripture in John chapter 11. A person was preaching. And when he said those words, when Jesus was standing beside the grave of Lazarus. And he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. There was something, a light went on inside of my heart. The darkness became light just for a split second as I asked the question of my own soul. Is Jesus really alive? Because if Jesus is really alive, then maybe he can change somebody like me. Maybe what the Bible has to say is true. We know that death terminates life. But the Bible seems to indicate that you'll never, ever, ever be ready for death. Unless you're prepared for life. No one can make reservations in heaven for you. Oh. Except for one person. Jesus. Jesus can make reservations in heaven for you. The truth, opportunity is limited to life. The Bible says that it's appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. And life is short. And yet life is eternally significant because it is in this life that will forever determine what kind of a life you'll have in the not too distant future. And the truth for some of you it's way closer than you could ever imagine. Our hope Beyond death is Jesus. First ten verses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your love and thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. Lord, we know that there is physical life that is conceived the moment that the egg and the sperm unite and life is formed. And we know that life will come to an abrupt halt at some point. But we also know that spiritual life can only come if we're born again. The Bible says that we're born dead in trespass and sin. But God, by his Holy Spirit, extends an invitation that we can have life. And we can have it more abundantly in Jesus. If you've never experienced that life, you should pray this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need forgiveness. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead. And that he is capable of forgiving me my sin. And so I place my trust and my confidence in Jesus alone forever. And I believe that when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life and he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. That no matter where this life takes me, 
and whatever form of death that I will one day embrace. That I will be found alive and well with Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.